Um, I talk to other guys with about marriage, about this, um, about marriage sometimes. You, you know this, those who are married, you know, it's one thing to be with your spouse and be together with them. Uh, but it's sometimes, it's really hard to spend time really being with them. You know the, you know the difference, right? Uh, life is as busy as Rhonda was saying with hurried dinners and um, putting kids to bed, transporting them different places. And you ever feel like, like uh, taking care of your children and your marriage is like a, it's like a military strategy session, <laughs> trying to get everything together. Um, the marriage retreat is a great time, really, like she said, to really slow down and, and be all there with your spouse to discuss biblical truths and then to apply them in your marriage so that your intimacy grows. So there's my marriage retreat uh, plug, but it also serves as a uh, segue, a transition into our text today before we read it. Because John wrote this letter, he really loved these Christians. Like you can tell, he, he just has this heart for them. And um, these Christians are, are tempted to stray away from Christ and their relationship with him. These false teachers are among them. They're trying to, they're acting like Christians. And, and, and they're trying to get them to stray away from Christ in these different ways. And, and John is telling them, he says, look, slow down. Abide with Christ. It's encouragement for those Christians then and all of us today, not just to spend time doing the right things, right? We can spend, just like marriage, in our relationship with God. We just, we do the right things. We go through the motions. We have our strategy sessions. But it's different to be really, to be with Him. To slow down and spend time being there with Him so our intimacy with Him grows. And Pastor Mike preached last week about, his last point was on abiding and he finished his sermon talking about some practical ways how to abide. So how, what, are, what are some of the batteries in our relationship with, with, with God? I summarize them. Word, worship, prayer, and people. If you can see those. So word, worship, prayer, and people. So under word, it just says, you know, get a good study Bible and read it um, regularly. Um, have a reading plan. Worship, come to worship regularly. And I, I can't read that very well. <laughs> Uh, the preaching of God's word, come to Sunday school, prayer, and then people, have people in your lives. Don't just, you know, uh, Hebrews 3 says, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that your heart will not be uh, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How quick will your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Daily. And so you need other people, like in a life group or a discipleship or mentor. So some, those are some of the ways. But today John gives rather, not ways, not the batteries itself, but the motivations to push the battery in. The, 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 and the evidences that you are actually connected to the battery. Okay, So he gives the evidences and motivations of abiding with Christ. So let's read our text. 1 John 2, 28-310. Reading of God's Word. And now, little children... Abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. 
What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. A reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray once more. God, we thank you for the opportunity to, without threat or fear of persecution, opening, open your word that's given to us. We have it translated in our language. What a blessing. But yet, the temptation today is that our hearts would come in heavy and full of things we've participated in on the weekend, burdened by certain conflicts or suffering trials in our lives and pray father that you would allow us to unite our hearts to be united that we may fear your name and hear your word and the holy spirit would fill us in such a way that we would see and hear the beauty of the gospel through this text and we'd leave wanting and desiring to be abiding with you in jesus precious name amen John says it two times in a row, in verse 27 and 28, an imperative, a command to abide in Christ. Abide in Him, referring to Jesus. Abide means to dwell, to stay or remain somewhere, to continue in a place. I remember memorizing this word in um, seminary. You try to have word pictures. The word in Greek is minnow. And so I pictured this little minnow in this fast stream, um, getting out of the stream and, and, and hiding behind a little eddy in a rock, kind of just dwelling there in safety uh, from, from the stream. I think, though, maybe a better illustration with John here, though, is more, more like a wartime situation. Uh, these Christians, you see, are being wooed away, being tempted to be swept away ever from Jesus ever, ever so subtly. And John knows that this is the difference between eternal life and eternal death, of being a child of the devil and being a child of God. This is serious. And so maybe a better illustration is like, he's using this like a general might tell his troops that have taken a a hill to upper ground, and the enemy's attacking, and he says, hold your ground. Remain here. Bunker, Bunker down. We still use that idiom, hold your ground, right? To indicate, to encourage someone to refuse to change your beliefs or opinion about something when others are trying to maybe woo you away from them or force you away from them. Now, I don't think there are any false teachers here this morning before church kind of walking around subtly whispering, you know, hey, this is better than Jesus. I don't think that happened. 
But I do think that we are, each of us, are subtly tempted to be swept along in the stream of our cultural values. To maybe come to church and just read your Bible a few times a week, but find ourselves really abiding and dwelling more in the culture and its loves and its values than with Jesus. See, everybody here is abiding somewhere or in something or in someone. It's not just a Christian term. People abide in whatever your heart loves most. Those people or things or goals become where you dwell. If you find what one thinks about most, where they spend the most of their time and where they spend their money, you'll tend to find where they are dwelling, where their heart's dwelling. So let this time be a time of evaluation. I think that's what John is wanting them to do. Where is your heart abiding? What's your heart abiding in this morning? And John gives us three areas to look into. One, you can look into your confidence. Where is your confidence? Two is your experience of love. Where are you getting that from? And three is take a look at your righteousness, the way you're living. And maybe you don't quite know where you're abiding. That's okay. John gives these as evidences. But maybe you're here this morning and, and you, know, you know your heart is far from God and you know that you, you have no desire to abide with Christ. That's, that is totally okay too. And we're glad you are here. But I think what John would do here is these is say these aren't just evidences, but these are also motivations. He's saying as if, what in the world is better than what Jesus offers you here? And, and hold it up that your heart may choose wisely for eternity's sake and abide in Christ. For many of us who know we're in Christ, these evidences should give assurance as well as motivation for our heart to all the more slow down, to dwell, to get out of the stream in one way and and spend more quality time abiding, being all there in our relationship with Christ, that our intimacy with Him may grow. So let's look first at our confidence. Okay, An evidence and motivation of abiding is our confidence. Verse 28, look in the text with me. It says, now little children. Let me um, comment on little children, by the way. Uh, Little children doesn't necessarily, he's not using the term uh, for just little children. It's like you can't tune out if you're like five and above or something, you know. It's funny, as Mike said, little children, um, Marty Pyros goes, that's not me. (laughs) My little boy says, I am not little, I am a big boy. So, my three-year-old. John is not using that term like this. It's a ter- term of endearment. He's, uh, it's, it's, it's like a pet name you give your wife, right? Honey. Um, some of you, I'm sure you would admit it, but schnookums or sugar pie, probably say that. But it's, this is how John's using that. He's saying, my dearly loved uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how he's saying that. Little children, a term of endearment. He says, abide with Christ so that... You know, this is evidence. If you're abiding with Christ, he says, when he appears, talking about Jesus, we may have confidence in verse 28. We may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. Confidence means boldness or courage. And and here's what John is saying. How you abide with Christ will determine how you'll react when Jesus comes back. 
Where you abide now will determine your confidence when he comes back. So it's like this. It's like the difference between setting out butter and setting out a sunflower plant at night and their anticipation of the sun rising or coming. Okay? One is not anticipating it very well um, because they're going to melt. The other gains confidence, becomes emboldened, even stretches and follows the sun as it passes overhead. You see, John later writes in Revelation that why some will melt in shame and fear when Jesus comes back. He tells vividly that Jesus will come on a white horse with an army. It'll be an army. He won't be like a little picture holding a lamb then. It's on the wall of a lot of churches. His name will be called King of Kings, and in perfect righteousness he will judge all sin, even the words that did not come from your mouth, but you just thought them. He will judge it in perfect righteousness and wage war on sinners, and he says he will tread the wine press of the fierce wrath of God against all sin. And those who do not have him, or have rejected him, or have simply ignored him, They've abided elsewhere. They will melt like butter before such a person. Shame. They will feel shame. Shame, it means to feel shame or disgrace because of having done something wrong, is that word here. Something beneath the dignity. Picture two wives. Um, whose husbands both leave for World War II. Wife one, though her husband is gone, her she she still decides to abide with him. She's still abiding with. Him. She's faithful. She's she's thinking of him often. She looks at his picture in the mornings and at night. She tells stories about the, their father, her husband, at at night to the kids. She writes him, and she anticipates his return often. Wife two, her, her heart becomes quickly restless and lonely. And it starts to drift. And she doesn't abide and she ends up being unfaithful. And then imagine both of the husbands return unexpectedly and surprise both wives. What does wife one feel? Wife one feels love and joy and excitement, confidence. Why? Because she's been abiding. With him, even though he's not there. What does wife two feel? Shame. Fear. Disgrace from having done something beneath the dignity of her marriage. Why? Because she's been abiding elsewhere. So John gives us this truth. Your confidence often resides where your heart abides. Your confidence often resides where your heart abides. What you have confidence in, in other words, gives evidence to where your heart is abiding. I'll give you an example. I mentioned um, um, some in, uh, in, in my church in, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, I forgot, but some in my church in Mississippi, where I came from, I was there six years, and you know, it was interesting how um, 
how many of them had a lot of confidence when they would come to church on Sundays. Uh, but I could tell that their heart was not abiding in Jesus. And, and here's one way I could tell is, you know, if I ever, you know, I'd see them on Sundays or whatever, but if I ever, if I ever got them in a situation when one-on-one or in a small group setting and I brought up topics about Jesus, about sin and repentance, about the gospel, it's interesting how their confidence was just was swept away, melted away. If I talked about SEC football, about hunting or fishing, it's like they're a revival of their confidence. And, and this is what John's saying here. Confidence gives evidence of what your heart is abiding in. And he's asking, where is your confidence reside? Where is it? You know, some of us abide too much in social media. The average user is said to spend almost an hour a day just on Facebook. Um, the problem, though, is not social media. The problem is not Facebook. The problem is that you give your heart to abide there. And, and, and here's the difference. You give your heart to a place where people don't really know you, you don't really know them, but your confidence is there. How do you know if your heart abides there? So, how do you know your confidence is there? What happens when someone you see on Facebook or Instagram, or they just look better? They're dressed better. Their kids seem to be acting better. What happens to your confidence? They have the nicer car, nicer house. They have more friends. Does your confidence melt away? Does that affect your confidence? Um, what if you have more? You have better. Do you see somebody that's not doing as well there? Is that, is that the source of your confidence? That would be... A, an indication, an evidence that your heart is abiding there. You're not just checking in. Um, many of our hearts abide at our place of work. You know, God created us to work and enjoy our work, but not for our hearts to abide there, where, where we're constantly dwelling on our productivity. We're constantly, our hearts are, where our hearts are, they're, they're dwelling with our success. That's what we really want. To the end that we neglect our families and other things. You want to know if this is you? Does your, does your confidence come and go, rise and fall on any given day or week based on those things? Where is your confidence residing? Look there and you'll, you'll find it. it's there. It's competing with your abiding with Christ. John says in Revelation 19 that on the day that Jesus comes back, that many will not shrink back in shame but rather stretch towards him like that sunflower. They'll be strengthened in courage and anticipation. In other words, they won't see a war. They will see a marriage. They won't see a warrior executing justice, but they'll see a husband returning for his bride, the church. And what gives evidence that you and I feel such confidence is because you're abiding with Jesus now. Your confidence is the first evidence and motivation of abiding with Christ. Second evidence and motivation of abiding is your experience of God's love. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. See. See there is a command 
An invitation to take your eyes off of other things and behold something glorious. Has anybody ever, were you all outside on the 4th of July uh, looking at the fireworks? Did anybody see God's fireworks display? Did y'all see that? Wasn't that amazing? I mean, I've never seen anything like that. If you didn't see it, too bad. You'll never see it again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry. Isn't that our temptation? No, sorry. Um, you know, we were sitting there. We had a life group party. We we're watching a fireworks display over in Avalon. It lasted a few minutes. And then it's almost like the same time this massive cloud had been forming to the, uh, our northwest. And, and all of a sudden, I mean, just lightning bolt within the cloud. Uh, every one to three seconds. <clears throat> I mean, it just lit up. And we found ourselves coming, going around to each other and saying, I mean, you know, some are grabbing dessert and like, hey, come see this. This is, this is really good. Behold this. This is, come see this. And this is the way John is saying this here. He's not giving a lecture, in other words. He's not like, you know, turn to page 50 and then we're going to talk today about God's love. I'll give you four points about his love, you know. He's, what John's doing here is, because of the way he's using this word, he's, he's experiencing God's work, his love in front of them. He, he's inviting his re- readers into it. He's not just talking about it. He's talking about abiding with Christ. He's actually doing it right in front of them. It's like the difference between two types of shows on the cooking channel. You ever watch the cooking channel? I don't, or I would admit it up here, but... Um, no, I do. I love to cook. But um, you ever see those? You know, one show you have a very instructive show. You know, it's like, you know, today we're going to be making a meatloaf. You know, and step one, get out your ground beef and put it in a bowl and put a half cup of butter and you know, put a little here of God's love, put enough, you know, another scoop of abiding. You know, like that's not what John's doing here. You know, you know the other show like, I think isn't it called like the Food Guy? Is that a show? Or is that just the guy? There's somebody called the food guy. And I don't know what his show is, but like, that's not, it's got to be the best job ever. Imagine him walking around meeting new people at parties. You know, like, what's your name? I mean, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do for a living? I'm the food guy. Like, that's a job. <laughs> Frank gets paid a lot. But you know, what does his show do? It's not instructive. It's not a lecture. You know, the way it teaches is that the camera zooms in as he's like got this massive juicy burger, you know, melted cheese, crispy bacon, and avocado. Now you know what I like. Um, and he's biting in and the, you know, the camera's showing it. And it's just, you're like, I want to go there and I want to taste that now. <laughs> and that's the way John is saying this. And both see and then also the words he says, see what kind. He's, he's, like, he's like, man, just come and taste, zoom in on God's love here. For John, this was important. See, John had known loss and rejection more than most of us. Most of his friends, his best friends, the apostles, had been martyred, had been killed, murdered because of what they believed about Jesus, because of they abided in him. He, he took care of Jesus' mom, who became like a second mom to him. She has passed away at this point. Imagine losing your mother. And now the Roman emperor, like the president himself, has decided he's out for you. He's been shamed. He's been disgraced. He's been embarrassed. He's publicly, it's like he's posted all over Facebook as, as the one who's, who should be rejected, the enemy of the state. John has tasted 
He's not just talking about it. John has tasted the love of God that has sustained him through the trials and tests of life. What he's saying is this. He says that the trials and tests of life usually reveal, in those times, they usually reveal what you love most and what you're abiding in. See, you know, to, be want to, to want to be healthy and safe, that's a great thing. But if your heart dwells there and then comes the trials or the tests of sickness or, or disease, or you know, it doesn't just bother you, it, it crushes you. Your whole life feels like it's crumbling. It, it's, it's okay to, be want, to be, want to be liked and approved of. This is where I'm tempted to dwell, by the way. Or my heart, uh, my competitive abiding, <laughs> what competes for abiding with Jesus. But to be approved of by others, it's okay, that's okay, but your heart is abiding there. Come on. What happens when someone dislikes you? What happens when you're criticized and, and your heart is abiding with approval? And you're not, you're not just bothered, you're crushed by it. John holds out God's love as something that has sustained him through the tests and trials of life. And he's telling those other Christians, look, bunker down here. Bunker down. Hold your ground. Don't be swept away. This is, see, come out and look. See how much better this is than anything, any other love the world has to offer. The word love he uses there is agape. It's very familiar. It's affection based on sincere appreciation. It's a type of love where somebody says, look, I'm not just here with you. I'm so pleased with you. I delight in you. It's interesting in verse 3 that he says the Father has actually given this love to you. Notice that in verse 3? He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to you? Love is not given in our culture. Right? Love in our culture, it's, it's, it's a feeling. You don't give your love, you fall in love. Based on what you like about another person or don't like. and It's often based on outward performance or looks. God is different from us. His love is given. It's not based on our performance, our sins, our successes, our moral victories, our failures. It's just given. You know, you get this if, if you've been in the room when your child was born. Right? Like, if, if, if my love was based on how my firstborn baby looked when, they came, when she came out, it just, I wouldn't have loved her, I'll be honest. <laughs> I mean, if it was based on, like, how she treated me or how she served me or how she made much of me, there wouldn't have been much love for the first, I don't know, some of you parents know when that kicks in. <laughs> like, no, I get that, I get that. Um, but as a father or mother, you know, you, it's just given, right? You just, they come out and you're like, oh, I love them. I just give it. And that's probably why John brings up adoption. He says it over and over. For those who are in Christ, you're not just called children of God, but verse 2 says, so we are. Beloved, you are now children of God. You're sons and daughters. That's, he just gave you his love like that, like a father. And oh, how some of us this morning need to see that. Behold it to taste and bite into it. Especially if you had a, fa- a, a bad father or mother that didn't really love you very well. Or if you, if you have a spouse that doesn't delight in you. 
or you don't have a spouse at all and you long to have somebody love you like that. Or for those who feel like criticism of others have defined you all your lives, you feel rejected. To those who are suffering and maybe doubt God's love because you think you did something to earn his disapproval, his displeasure. Maybe you did. But look, if, if you were in Christ this morning, God says this morning, be fully, God is fully aware of all your failures and your sins, and he loves you as a perfect father. God knows all of your sin and delights in you as his son or daughter, and God has just given or pledged forever his great affection and delight upon you. There's no more shame. You're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're called to dwell on that often. To remain, to hold your ground in, that tr- in those truths. Especially when your sinful nature is tempted to look at your sin to evaluate whether you're approved of or delighted by God. And that, look, that, that takes more than skimming the Bible once or twice a week. It takes more than just coming to church. It takes engaging your heart in worship. Listening to the words of the song. How deep the Father's love for you. How vast. It's immeasurable. Not just seeing it, but feeling it. Of getting around people who are not just going to talk to you about football, but also talk to you about how's, how's your heart? Where's it abiding this week? You need those type of things in your lives. You need those batteries. That's the second evidence of abiding and motivation. Isn't that motivating? To abide with Christ. Your experience of God's love. Lastly, the last one is your righteousness. The evidence and motivation of abiding. See, John spends the rest of this passage basically saying this. If you're abiding in Christ, your life will show it. It will give evidence by your righteousness, by the way you live. Verse 3. He says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Verse 10, practicing righteousness, he says, gives evidence that you're a child of God. Let me get one thing out of the way here before we dive into this last point. that, that John is not saying that Christians do not sin. Right? I'm not making that up. John himself says that very clearly. Um, you know, I sat beside a Mormon one time on a plane who, um, who told me she had never and does not currently sin. And two things went through my head. One, I was like, oh man, like lightning is going to strike the plane. <laughs> it's, I mean, like, this is, that is so absurd to me. Like, that's so bad. Um, we're going down. But Two, I was thinking, like, she does, obviously does not have kids. There's no way. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I should have just said that. I didn't say it. I was thinking that. I was like, you, do, you don't have kids. There's no way. You'll learn. <laughs> do not know impatience. Um, John's already made it clear in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. That's so clear. Verse 10 he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and the truth is not in us. Okay, so let's get that out of the way. Christians sin. That being clear, that being understood, what is John saying? He's saying, look, you become a Christian, it makes, it changes the way you think of your sin. 
It changes the way that word practice means the way you live, the way you enjoy, what you enjoy, what you love doing. If you're a Christian, he says, you don't, now that you don't love doing anymore. That, it changes the way you think and speak and act. As one theologian said, John Stott, he said, righteousness, righteous living, is righteousness is a proof, is proof or evidence of the relationship. That's you as a Christian. So, what John is saying, there's a direct uh, connection between uh, where you abide and the way you live. The same way there's a direct connection between a fruit, a, a branch bears, and it's remaining to, to a life-giving stem. You cut it off, and it's, it doesn't bear fruit anymore. It's like what Jesus told Nicodemus. Remember what he's talking about this? What it means to be born of God, born a child of God? He says, look at the wind, Nicodemus. It gives evidence of something. You know what I'm talking about? You know it's windy outside. Okay? Then you glance out and you see these trees going out like this, swaying. You don't run outside and stare at the trees and be like, oh my goodness, that's crazy. What in the world's going on? <laughs> you know? It's like it's cause and effect. The wind blows. If the Spirit of God blows through you, you will hate righteousness, unrighteousness, and you will start to love walking, practicing righteousness. John's saying this because there are some who were saying that you can disconnect your theology from your living. They were saying, believe in God and go do what you want to. John says, if you don't have a desire for righteous living, he says, listen, you are not a child of God. You do not know God. And you will not live with Him forever. You do not have eternal life. And this is sobering. Because if you're hard, if you're sitting here today, and again, we're glad you're here, if you, if you know you don't abide in Christ. But there's a double-edged sword here. He's, he uses language stuff like child of the devil, and I don't have time to go into that, but it is serious to not have any desire for, to dwell or abide in Jesus. Eternity is at stake. This is not a feel-good, self-help, make-your-life-better type of text. Evaluate your life. Do you abide and practice unrighteousness? Do you dwell in and love the world? If so, and then for all of us, let me, let me end with two motivations. John holds out and says, look, see this. Let me, let me give some motivations, he says, for righteous living. Number one of the two, the motivation. But this is, he says, this is better. Verse five. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. To take away your sins. Jesus came to take away your sins. Take away means to remove. And even that word is used sometimes to destroy. So you picture somebody at that time going into the temple so full of their impatience for their kids, their hypocrisy in their mind, their 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 lust in their heart, but they hate it. They don't want it, but they, they're going in feeling guilty. They're feeling ashamed. They don't have confidence as they go before God in the temple. And all of a sudden, the, the priest pulls out a goat, and he says, guess what? God made a way. Place your hands on the goat. And then the goat is just sent out into the wilderness, and he watches it go, and, and the priest looks at him and says, see there? You want to know where your sins are? They've been taken away. Other times a priest would take the lamb and they would lay their hands and it would be a blood fest. 
Talk about destroying. It was graphic destroying. It's not like take them behind the scenes and cut them up and, you know, make some pork chops. It, it was like right before them and blood was just sprinkled all over them so that they'd leave with blood spots and say, man, my, my sins have been destroyed because the lamb was destroyed in my place. That's what he's doing here. As far as the east is from the west, says Psalm 103, so far, how far as the east is from the west? It's pretty far. So far has he removed your transgressions from you. You believe that this morning, Christian? About to take this off. There are two, picture this. There are two ways to clean a casserole dish. You ever make a good casserole and uh, it's, it's. There it goes. You ever make casseroles and uh, and you get done and it's caked with those, um, you know, it's caked with your chicken on it, you know, and there's two ways to clean that dish. It's all burnt all over or whatever. There's one you can take out your, you know, your knife or whatever and start scraping, spend the next hour and a half scraping and sweating over the casserole dish. Right? There's another one. You put it in some grease-fighting agent, you soak it overnight, fill it with water, soak it overnight, and in the morning you basically just have to rinse it away. There's two ways, John says, to purify yourself from unrighteousness and practice righteousness. One is religion. Identify sin, start scraping, stare it down, stare at your sin, and, and go at it, strive to avoid it. Identify areas needed righteousness and just put on some good rules and, and just go at it. Sweat and tears. John's not talking about something marked by self-effort and rules and frustration and guilt. He says, look, verse 3. says, if you have such hope, everyone who has this hope purifies himself. It is a hope that people are soaking in what Jesus has done for you. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. If your sins have been borne on the tree in His body and removed, He says, so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. When you soak in that reality that Jesus left abiding from the, with the Father, He was always doing that for all of eternity, to bear your sins on, the, on His body, to suffer the fierce wrath of God and His displeasure so that anyone who believes in Him could be forgiven and your sins be taken away and considered a son or daughter of God. Does that make you want to go sin all the more? Does that make you, your heart want to go out and be like, I'll just go out and enjoy unrighteousness? No. It makes you want to abide. And then lastly, just He gives love. He comes back to life. You know, I'm going to end with that because I've talked with so many who say, uh, mainly non-Christians, uh, who say, if, if, if that's how our sin, uh, if, if your sins are taken away, why don't you go and sin all the more? Why doesn't that motivate unrighteousness? I've talked to several, several Muslims um, have this question. Because in, their, in Islam, uh, motivation to obey is usually fear. Uh, your confidence before God is in your righteousness. I usually give give this illustration. You know, I've been I've been married um, nine months this year. My wife and I struggled a lot in nine months. Sorry, nine years. That's the months. 
Some of you are doing the math with our kids. Uh, I've been married nine years this month. Uh, my wife and I, we, we struggled some in our first years of marriage. And it was hard. Uh, but we persevered through it. And uh, we're in a place that we really enjoy each other. Uh, we, you know, we don't, we just, we really, there's not just a love as in like commitment. Like we, we kind of enjoy putting on the kids and spending time together. We, we delight in each other. Um, you know, she has my heart and she makes me happy. And so I tell them that with that question. And I say, and I ask them, what motivates me to, what would make me want to go flee uh, or just, you know, go home and ignore her, speak harshly to her or the kids? What would make motivate, what keeps me from going and being unfaithful to her? And, and they're able to answer the question every time. That's better. When you know you're loved and you're delighted in it, you don't want to go elsewhere. That's what you want to abide in. It's not just a last plug for marriage for you. <laughs> if God gets your heart like this, you really grasp how forgiven, how cleansed you already are. And at what cost to himself that he went to to make you like that, to bring you to himself. And not just objectively, but so that subjectively that you have his heart's delight and his pleasure for all of eternity. It's one reason marriage is not in heaven, because if you think you're missing out here, this is nothing. Everything the best marriage in here describes about their love and delight is nothing compared to marriage to the Lamb that you will have for all of eternity. And he says, look, you can abide in that now. Doesn't it make you want to abide? Doesn't it make you want to do more? Spending time with word, listen to him, preach word, to be encouraged and reminded of it by people in the week that dwell a little bit longer in prayer. Dearly loved children of God, let's go and abide with Christ as well. God, we bless you and honor you for having done the work to bring us to yourself. We pray that we would go out with the evidences and the motivation to abide with you. In Jesus' name.